0: Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition for the last 30 years. It's Rosie on the House.
1: Yeah, you know, I've been a little hesitant to say it the last few months because it's dark out when we start the broadcast. But I... I now know why I don't ever have to worry about saying a beautiful Arizona good morning, ever. Why is that? Because no matter what happens outside, we're not negative 23 degrees <laughs> with a lake of ice outside of our city. Have you seen the pictures from the Wall Street Journal of the Arizona Republic? Look at this fireman. It says... He's covered in ice as he fights a blaze. What possible blaze is there when it's minus 23? Doesn't Do you even need to fight it? Doesn't the weather just take care of it for itself?
2: Did you catch it, Julia, even, your sister? They had f- minus 55.
1: Even in Flagstaff and the White Mountains, Pine Top, Neutrioso, the coldest parts of Arizona, are not that miserable.
2: That's pretty miserable. Negative
1: 55 in Minneapolis? Yep. Uh, there's a poem, a Wisconsin poem. It's winter in Wisconsin. And the gentle breeze blow 70 miles an hour at 35 below. Oh, how I love Wisconsin when the snow's up to your rear. You take a a breath of air and your nose gets frozen shut. Yes, the weather here is wonderful, so I guess I'll hang around. I could never leave Wisconsin because I'm frozen to the ground. So, yes, it's dark outside and I haven't looked at the weather, but I'm telling you, welcome to a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning because you are not in Wisconsin. February's edition of Arizona Highways is all about the Grand Canyon National Park celebrating their 100th anniversary. On page 16, there's events of the century, a couple of them. The This one I signed up for. It's a Mapping the Grand Canyon conference at the end of the month at Arizona State University. There is And another one I want to get to, there's a Grand Canyon Star Party on the South Rim and North Rim in June. Now, I've stayed uh. on the North Rim once at that... A uh, little cottage that they take you to when you raft the Grand Canyon. They fly you in a little Cessna type plane and then they helicopter you down the next morning. The ranch. Into up the there. Canyon. Mm-hmm. Well that ranch, that was the darkest night I have ever experienced in my life on the North Rim. You couldn't see any kind of city glow from Vegas or any and there was a no moon. I mean just you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. I want to make it back up there for that but they've got uh, a lot of great things the native american heritage celebrations in august and november that's all on page 16 and 17 and then on uh, page uh, 42 starts a really neat essay about uh, the north side of the grand canyon a lot of people go to the south side you see the rim you may hike down a little bit getting around to the north side is a lot more effort but it's a completely different part of the grand canyon if you've been to the south rim a few times Next time, you need to make a trip to the north. The elevation's a lot higher, so instead of looking across it, you're looking down, and there's a lot more forestry on the north side. So the Grand Canyon, that's February's Arizona Highways. If you don't subscribe, it's on newsstands now, but uh, that's because it's celebrating its 100th anniversary. But you may not know, we're only a few days away from 101st anniversary of Arizona's deadliest gunfight. This is a story that producer Gary D. found to us, and brought uh, put together a fascinating story and there's a book has been written about it along with a documentary all from the research of Heidi Ossler who's in studio with us now thanks for first of all the incredible research you've put together for this thank you for having me tell us about Arizona's deadliest gunfight
3: well it took place in an unexpected place um very uh, remote location. It wasn't in at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone. It wasn't in the Pleasant Valley War. Uh, four people died in the Galoro Mountains in 1918 during World War One, and it happened when the Graham County Sheriff and two deputies and a federal marshal came up to arrest the gentleman at the a mining camp for draft evasion and. At the end of the day, three of the lawmen were killed, and the father of the two draft evaders was also killed. And the boys left um, with a hired hand, Tom Sisson, Tom and John Power, um, on a manhunt.
1: And before we get into all the details about it, where would you get the inspiration to write this?
3: About six and a half years ago, Cameron Trejo came to me. He was doing a documentary. He had read Tom Power's Shootout at Dawn. And he'd read um, the other side of the story written by a descendant of of the sheriff. And he said, which account is true? And I kind of skimmed through them, And I said, boy, I don't think either one was. (laughs) This is a story I could tell right away. We had to take it down to the studs. Uh, There was so much folklore intertwined into the story that, you know, we had to go and look at it fresh again. And that's what we did. And at the end of the day, when the documentary film was done, um, I I said, well, I've got thousands of pages of research notes. I might as well do a book.
1: And that's what happened. (laughs) And you can watch that documentary. It's on YouTube. We watched it this week. It has over 58,000 views. You would just look up Powers War. Uh, Wild West Forgotten History documentary. And one of the impressive things about your book when you talk about it, I picked it up. I thought, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to get through all this before the interview, and I didn't. But I got a lot farther because of this Three hundred page book. The story ends at two twenty five. You got seventy five pages of all your references.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I did spend quite a few years in archives. You know, just going through property records and tax records because there was there's so many variations of the story. They everyone wants to characterize the powers as outlaws or and thieves and other things. And actually, they didn't have any um, charges against them that to speak of. Um, they were never you know found guilty of any crimes they were kind of a normal um very poor family they lived in the hill country of texas and And they, they were they were not educated and they were poor so i think their story was never told and how they
1: got here kind of leads up to the events that happened on that february 10th morning
3: Right, uh, I think you know they they wanted to live away from society. They were cattle ranchers. They were working a mine. They um, just didn't want to be part of the social crowd, and they wanted to be far away. But I think during World War One, that wasn't an option. Um, you had to be uh, a booster of the war. You had to be patriotic, and they they weren't. They didn't sign up for the Red Cross or liberty bonds or all the things that were expected but then the boys didn't sign up for the draft cuz they just felt they they were had to be home supporting their family work in the mine and if they were off in the trenches of Europe fighting um, then their their family would they suffer.
1: Lost their mom. They had a lost years. their mom
3: when they were young. They were raised by their dad alone. There were four children in the family. They, I think the oldest was eleven when their mother died. He, um, Jeff Power was the patriarch of the fa- of the family. His mother, um, their grandmother, helped raise them, and and so they 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 lived off the land. They grew their own crops. You know and. Just freak accidents. Uh, the mom died when a,
1: a house collapsed Lipsed on her on her head and crushed her. And then the grandmother died from a runaway horse.
3: Yeah, but they also lived out in the sticks, and those kinds of accidents were were frequent. And they lived in this um, tough terrain where course accidents were happened often. So I think that was, yeah, it was very tragic, but not unusual. And then, of course, the death that really triggered everything was the death of Ola May Power, the youngest member of the family, when she was just 23. We still don't know how she died.
1: Mm. And so you're left with a dad, two sons, and a hired hand living remotely in these mountains with this this chain of tragedy over the last decade. You're pretty hardened.
3: Yes. Um, They're living in a place where the nearest neighbor is several miles away, and those are minors. Um, So... They're living in a tiny shack that's, you know, 15 by 20 feet, and they're bears, and there's mountain lions. And on Sunday morning before dawn in winter, they heard a noise outside. What, what would you do if you were living in those circumstances and you, you heard the dogs barking and the horses making a ruckus? Well, the same thing I do at home,
1: <laughs> grab the double barrel and go see
3: what's going yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff Power grabbed his Winchester, walked out the door, and found himself face-to-face with a couple of deputies. And they did not identify themselves. They said, throw up your hands. And if there's some dispute as to what happened after that. Obviously, the two sides had different versions. But it seems as though he was trying to surrender to them. Um, but then shooting broke loose and he went down first he was shot through the chest through the lung and he would die later that day and his boys inside said you know later on they shot down our pa you'd, you'd fight back too if you were in the similar circumstances
1: especially if you didn't know who you were fighting and mm-hmm. you exactly. just said they were unidentified whether it was an intentional or accidental fire I mean you just
3: I suspect the, things got out of control real quickly. It was dark out. It's it, it sort was of dark. like it is right it now. It was in a
1: canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first shot they say was around seven thirty, only fifteen minutes from now. Right. Take the outside light and put it in a canyon,
3: and it was. They've been overcast, traveling
1: all mm-hmm. night, um, so they're already tired, uh, probably a little bit. Your nerves are shaking. Mm-hmm. The the lawmen have, themselves weren't even over thirty. I mean, it, it could have just been a shaking hand on a trigger. Uh, whether it was an intentional or accidental, but the first shot rang out, the dad goes down, the three men in the cabin fight back.
3: Right. That's exactly right. And and I think for me... um when I was looking at all the stories that had been written about this, they they all focused on who ambushed who, you know, the lawman set up an ambush to kill the powers to get their mind was one theory. Um, the other theory was that these, these people, the power families were hardened criminals. They killed their own sister to hide up, hide that criminality. And there's really no in- evidence of either side of the, those stories. Um, but, I, I understood pretty quickly that maybe there were some other factors at play here that it wasn't a feud. They weren't fighting over a valuable gold mine or anything like that. Because quite frankly, when the gold mine went up for auction, it sold, nobody bid on it. So I don't think it was as valuable as they all like to think.
1: I saw somewhere, uh, I don't know if it was in the documentary or the book, but total out of the mine, they've only ever pulled like Fifty-three ounces of gold, right, and today's value is less than seventy thousand dollars.
3: And it was such a remote area to, to haul ore out cost of there. A hundred thousand to mine it. <laughs> exactly. They they spent the last two years just trying to build a trail up there to get equipment in. So
0: cruising through the Arizona hour with Sanderson Ford and Rosie on the house.
1: What made this such an infamous gunfight as opposed to some of the others? This fight left. Three widows and 19 children without a father.
0: I mean, it's Arizona's deadliest gunfight. More deadly than the shootout at the O.K. Corral.
1: And the interesting thing, we're talking with author Heidi Ossler. You're a local state historian. And on your book, Arizona's Deadliest Gunfight, Draft Resistance and and Tragedy at the Power Cabin 1918, looking at this picture of the cabin that mm-hmm. still stands, And you mentioned in the preference that some lawyers from Tucson uh, a decade or so ago went out and helped re uh, support it. And uh, they didn't refurbish it. They just reinforced the structural integrity. They
3: brought in some new logs where it was collapsing and rebuilt it.
1: And it's completely surrounded by hills and Mm -hmm. uh, the vegetation growth. It was four on four, four guys inside, four guys outside. You would think the four guys inside wouldn't stand a chance. Right. You've got 1918, so they're probably using lever-action rifles. They've probably got revolvers. Each of mm-hmm. these officers probably have 12 bullets total without having to reload. Four guys shooting inside would be like shooting fish in the barrel. But the guys inside, you know, you would think the death toll would be reversed. Three died inside, one outside, but it was three outside, one inside. Well, I don't and he th- wasn't even inside. He was walking out the door.
3: <laughs> I don't think the lawman wanted to kill them. They wanted to capture them, bring them to justice. Um, to me, that's absolutely right. It's crazy. But the lawmen just stood out in the open. They didn't take cover. Um, and so. I think they were just standing in front, except for the federal marshal, who was the most experienced lawman. He'd been in law tw- 10 years. He was kind of around behind back, the back. And it's obvious from his testimony he didn't see a whole lot because he didn't have a good view. But the other three Graham County lawmen were in plain sight. And when the Power Boys got out of bed and started shooting, they were right outside the window. So. Yeah, they they went down. Um, Two of the deputies went down with one shot towards, you know, both of them back of the head. And then um, the sheriff was shot um, from somebody laying in the, the shed area, was down on the ground shooting up, and they shot him in the knee and then the stomach. And then something strange happened because he was shot through the head. And we aren't sure why, but when you have a stomach injury and you're out in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere, you're gonna, it's a very painful way to die. And I've had a lot of people experienced in this say that normally when that happens, somebody gives the victim a gun and they take care of themselves. But there was also accusation, ac- accusations that the powers did that. And so, of course, that was played up at the subsequent tr- trial. When and she, when you they, and
1: your husband have acted this gunfight out. Yes. Who won?
3: <laughs> you know, I think no, but there was no, no winners here. No,
1: I meant between you and your husband. Oh, well. Know. Tom's in no. studio with us.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the powers <laughs> usually come out ahead because three of them survived. Um, and But in the end, both sides lost quite a bit. You heard the Marshall Trimble in that clip say how many children were left Without children, without fathers, um, it was a, a horrible tragedy. The
1: second most fascinating part of this story is the federal marshal, uh, mm. Frank Haynes. Frank Haynes. So he's behind the building, and the shooting's going out towards the front where are the lawmen are. He takes off when the fighting breaks out. It took them all night to get there. They're traveling at the dark, very rough mountains, mm-hmm. understood. This is about 7.30 in the morning. This is 1918. Mm-hmm. He's back in Safford, sending a telegram by noon. Yes, he is. That must have been the ride of a lifetime. It go, was on, going down that mountain.
3: They said that was. He just flew down to the little town of Klondike, which was the closest um, place where they had left their Model T coming up. Um, he realized when he got there that he didn't have the key to the car, and they had because it was in the sheriff's. Pocket and he laid dead up at the cabin, so they had to hotwire the car. Uh, somebody figured out how to do that real quick, and then he drove, um, put put put. You know, maybe thirty-five miles say, an hour. The horse on, was going almost as fast as a 1918 exactly, Model T into Safford, and he got that that telegram off to Washington D.C. by noon, and it sat in a federal bureaucrat's desk for several days because it was Sunday and nobody paid any attention to it.
1: But Uh, So that was in D.C., but locally, they had a 11-man posse back up to the cabin within 24 hours. They
3: were up there um, real quick, and also there was um, posse on the ground out Reddington, which was um, just east of where they were, or west of where they were, um, where the shootout was. And they almost caught them. But then the three men, the fugitives, took—
1: I don't want to spoil it, because next segment we'll talk about that, because it's still, if I remember correctly— uh, and I, I only had like three days to do the research, but this led to the biggest manhunt in Arizona yes. history. Yes. Okay, so we'll talk about the next 28 days after the gunfight, the trial, and uh, ultimately what, what has happened. Okay. Oh, 101 years ago. Come next uh, next Sunday, February 10th, will be the 101st anniversary. So if you're listening, you can text to four one one nine is the date of this? And we've got Arizona State Passes tickets that will send uh, any right winner between now and the end of the news break. What date was Arizona's deadliest gunfight? Text the answer to 411 923 for a chance at Arizona State Park Passes.
0: The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. D's are
3: boring.
1: Well, we lost uh, an Arizona icon this week. The uh, Bedrock Flintstones theme park shut down after uh, being opened in 1972. They're going to have to reprint the uh, Arizona's Weird Things book now. But uh, we're talking about the hash knife. You can send. You know, we got a, a business trip coming Wednesday. You can send mail. Oh, great. Via Pony Express. Love it. Wednesday from the Creekside Steakhouse and Tavern in Christopher Creek. So the restaurant opens at noon. We're going to get up there, have lunch. Pony Express is expected to come by between one thirty and 2.30. So we're going to go have a cheeseburger and watch our mail get picked up. we got to think of something funny to send Rosie and have it delivered on uh, Pony Express down oh, in perfect. Prada del Sol. Think so they come think to the house? We're going to send?
2: The Pony Express to stop by the house? <laughs> Wouldn't have to time. Take a small
1: detour. <laughs>
0: something LSU-ish. Yes. Uh-huh. It does it- that's like completely a, out of the Western theme so, of the So, you know Express. what? We,
1: we're, we got it right here. You've got the jackalope, the rabbit, and uh. the deer combined. We got to do like a an LSU tiger and a <laughs> elk horn or something. <laughs> <laughs> Alligator head and an yeah, horn. Dad did that. There you go. Okay.
0: We're working on it.
1: <laughs> we're working on it. So, that that's Wednesday. And you can go to Hashknife Pony Express website and see all the different places that they're pickups and drop off and have something uh, delivered in mail via Pony Express. But... Uh, this hour, we're talking with author Heidi Ossler of Arizona's Deadliest Gunfight. Great. Uh, I have not gotten through uh, the majority of the book, but one thing I have thoroughly enjoyed about it is you've got a great vocabulary. You don't need a dictionary at the source, but you do uh, challenge the reader to expand their vocabulary stuff, uh, and it's it's very enjoyable. Thank you. So we've got... The shootout that happened, mm-hmm. and one of the things before we get to the manhunt was just the transition of time that we were talking about in, uh, you know, you're going from Old West to, you know, an, an industrial new world, and there was a lot of, you know, we we had machine guns, but uh, we still had six shooters, and it was a very, uh, you, you a manhunt today, you've got cell phones, helicopters, right. GPS, radio antenna. I mean, drones. They had, <laughs> drones, they had telegrams, smoke signals, horses.
3: They did. And they had bloodhounds going after the boys, um, which is a very old and traditional way of hunting people. They also had um, some scouts from the San Carlos Indian Reservation tracking them as well. But most of the posse were on trucks, and that wasn't a real good way to track them because they were in the Dragoon Mountains and the Chiricahuas and rough rough areas of New Mexico. Um, They were on horseback at first until their animals played out and John Tom Power Power and and Sisson were all uh, for a few days and then they were on foot after that hiding out. Um, There were over a thousand people looking for them, many of whom were members of the cavalry because they were guarding the the border in wartime, but there were rumors, I never was able to substantiate this, um, that they tracked down an airplane and had searchlights on it at, you know, it would have been those old biplanes flying around in World War I, like the Red Baron, um, looking for them. And so they evaded the law for 28 days until finally they surrendered to cavalry when they were over the border in Mexico. And, and this
1: was just sheer exhaustion. Uh, it was. One of them had been injured. The bullet went through his nose and struck Couch. his left eye. And
3: Well, actually, he didn't get a, a bullet in the eye. This is John Power. It did strike the um, bridge of his nose, I think. It was mostly debris from the gunfight. They were at the windows, and it was glass and wood and metal objects that were flying. Both John and Tom Power sustained injuries in their left eyes, their non-shooting eye. And um, by the time the cavalry cavalry caught up to them, they gave up because they were barefoot, they were dehydrated, they were starving, and there were the cavalry officers said there were maggots in John's eye. Ugh. It was mm-hmm. so infected. That's, well, at what, point that's did... what they say, hard bark. Those boys had some hard bark on them.
2: At what point did they realized what they were being, you know, sought after for. You said when they showed up, the, the sheriff did not say who they were. Right. Or what the. Well, I think and,
3: when they walked out the cabin and they saw that they had, they recognized that they had shot the sheriff. Um, literally, I shot the, the sheriff. sheriff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they realized they're in trouble. It's time to go.
2: <laughs>
1: and they actually
3: here. went to their neighbors, the miners that lived a few miles away and told them what happened. This isn't like they just took off. They said we're going away for a few days. We'll be back, and they 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 intimated that they really didn't want to give themselves up to Graham County officials because they thought they would kill them, and they wanted to go find a friendlier jurisdiction where they could turn themselves in and and get, be given a fair trial.
2: And that's the way it was supposed to be, mm-hmm. from what you said. They yes. were supposed to wait till they came to town. The officials were to wait till they came in, and then they were to be arrested. Not this.
3: Well, th- well, for draft so that- evasion, that was the usual way, rather than getting a posse to go get them. The draft evasion um, failure to register was just a misdemeanor, and so that was—the um, whole procedure was a little strange, yeah.
0: And when you think of World War I, you never think of the draft as being the reason why, you know, we were in it. You know, the draft is more of a—my re- aunts and uncles were involved in World War Two. Uh, Vietnam and everything else. But when it comes to World War I, the draft is out of mind, for, at least in my opinion. Or it was
3: basically. the first large-scale draft in U.S. history, and this was it was new to most Americans. The Civil War, there was a draft both in the North and the South, and it was a dismal failure. So the government... This time around in World War One, really made some strict guidelines to make sure everyone signed up, but um, a lot of boys felt that they sh- needed to be home running the farm. Great in depression's this case, going
1: on, families barely eating.
3: Yeah, well, it wasn't a depression in nineteen eight, seventeen or eighteen, but they, it, you know, if you're living off the land and all the guys that are young, World War II, sorry, yeah, yeah, World yeah, War Two. I'm II jumping ahead. <laughs> I'm getting my ones and twos um, combined. If you're uh, a family that lives off the land or proceeds of a mine or a cattle operation, and all your young men are gone, uh, it really did hurt the economy in Arizona because it was based on those three industries and all the young men were being sent to war in Europe. And they just didn't really believe in that war, and they were among the three million men who evaded the draft, most of whom lied about their age, hid out in the hills like the Power Boys were doing, or moved to a different town where they weren't known. Some of them did some drastic things. They um, shot off a toe. Or oh, that's they, pretty drastic. Um, some of them got ad- themselves addicted to drugs. Mm. Um, and I think the most radical thing is a lot of them rushed to the altar and got married, mistakenly believing that being married would exempt you from military s- service. And it was only it, a misdemeanor, you said. Yes. And it did not. Yes. <laughs> and so... You know, th- it was a little chaotic uh, for a lot of families to, to have to do. I, I met a gentleman not too long ago. He said he had five uncles during World War One evade the draft, mm-hmm. uh, the whole family of them, so, the, the brothers. So I, I, this was not unusual for So 28-day manhunt. They
1: surrender, exhausted, tired. They go to trial. They get sentenced. What's the sentencing?
3: They are sentenced with premeditated murder. Now, you think about it, when Jeff Power walked out of the cabin, the first shots, according to the federal marshal Frank Haynes, were, he said it, the first shots were inside the cabin. And then he said, Jeff Power went down. He'd been hit. So was he implying that the Power Boys shot their own father? I think there's a lot of um, evidence that the first shots came from the deputy. Outside um, and instead, so a lot of people didn't buy into that premeditated murder uh, charge that they were lying in wait for for the lawmen to shoot them, um, because quite frankly, the nobody shot the lawmen for a few minutes into the gunfight. The, that that was uh, contradicted all evidence on the ground.
1: Yeah, it would take a while to your your. In bed still, by the accounts, I mean, to get up, grab a gun, You're. It, it, this is a few minutes to de- or a few seconds to develop. Right. You're not immediately returning fire. So how long were they uh, sentenced for?
3: They were sentenced to life, and the only reason they escaped the hangman's noose was Arizona had outlawed the death penalty at that time. Uh, so they were sentenced to life, and they actually sat in prison without a parole hearing For over 35 years. And this was
1: at Florence?
3: At Florence, yes. And they were in the uh, very well, they were um, well respected by the prison guards because of their really good behavior. They were put out on the work gangs. They built the state roads. They um, were what we call trustees because they were well behaved. They did escape a couple times. Uh, Tom Power. Uh, escaped once, and he went kind of on joyriding. He got a car somehow, went to San Diego and whooped it up. (laughs) Uh, And then they caught him and brought him back. But he didn't commit any crimes while he was on this spree. Uh, He said, I just want to go see the country and enjoy myself. These were young men in their 20s. And and then in the 30s, the Depression hit the prison pretty hard. And Everybody was escaping from the state prison. The the local journalists had box scores. Oh, how many people escaped today? They they didn't even have funding for gas for the cars to go chase after guys when they broke out. And so both Tom and John Power escaped for a few months, went to Mexico until they ran out of money, and then they were caught by the Border Patrol and brought back to prison. But they always had exemplary behavior. So—
1: They finally get their parole hearing, and it's due to a reporter for the Arizona Republic who was chasing a completely separate story.
3: Don DeDara came out to the Florence prison, talked to Warden Iman, and said, uh, was talking to another prisoner. He said, I have a story for you. you got to interview these guys. Well, by then, they were in their 60s. Tom Sisson, who had died in prison at age 87— um in nineteen fifty seven, had just passed away, and the wardens really thought this was a shame that these boys should be given a hearing. Don Dadara, who still is with us, he's eighty nine years old and going strong. Lives in Payson. Lives in Payson. He was a young man at the time. He was the number one columnist for the Arizona Republic. He would go on, of course, to be editor of the Arizona Highways magazine, but he was well known in the state, and he started to do research on this. And he turned; they had been characterized in the newspapers during their trial as these horrible anarchists and these the monsters of 1918. Don Dadera revised that story, came up with a much more sympathetic view of them, and suddenly they were kindly old gentlemen at who. Had, who would not hurt anyone, and there was quite an uproar. Eugene Pulliam was the editor of the Republic at the time, staunch conservative Republican, and he said nothing as the firestorm began, with all the relatives screaming that the powers should stay in jail for all times, whereas the general public started to advocate for their release. Well, the book is Arizona Deadliest Gunfight, author,
1: joining us in studio, Heidi Oceler, uh state historian, and you teach at ASU.
3: Yes, I do part-time.
1: Wonderful. And obviously this book is available now.
3: Yes, it is on the University of Oklahoma Press website, Amazon. It's available in hardback, ebook and audio.
1: And you can, uh, of course, find those links at rosieonthehouse.com and today's archive page. Thanks for joining us and sharing this story of Arizona's deadliest gunfight. Thank you for having me.
0: It's our Wide Open Road. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour with Sanderson Ford.
1: Well, if you're not on the Arizona Game and Fish mailing list, you may have missed the fact that you can actually see or you have the opportunity to perhaps see a bald eagle being born in the near future. We've brought in the director of the streaming program, Mr. Jeff Myers, to tell us a little bit about the very unique service that Game and Fish provides. Tell us about it, Jeff.
0: I work uh, with the Watchable Wildlife Program in Arizona Game of Fish, and our main mission is to help people engage with uh, our diverse wildlife in the state of Arizona. Uh, What we find is that an increase of knowledge and familiarity um, leads to uh, fostering ever-increasing passion among the public for conservation of the state's wildlife. So one of the ways that we do that are these wildlife cams where we allow people kind of this intimate look into the life of various forms of wildlife that they wouldn't get to see otherwise. And our newest cam and one that we're, we're excited about, although gar- guardedly optimistic, I'll tell you about that, is, the, uh, is our bald eagle cam. We have that set up at Lake Pleasant where they do a closure on portion of the lake uh, every year to allow these uh, eagles to breed. But it's been a real soap opera this year. Um, while we were watching the breeding couple that has been returning to this nest for years, he was kind of kicked to the curb by a new male that came in. There was, oh, like, yeah, it was, it was. It's turning it's, the old
1: man out to pasture. Or exactly. Our, what do you this, What do you say when it's an eagle turning him turning him out to the sky?
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So the the new male came in and um, now mating with this uh, female. The first egg was laid on the 21st then a couple of ravens cruised by the nest kind of eyeballing that egg and this new male is really inexperienced he just doesn't really know what to do so he doesn't really know what's expected of him the nest is not being guarded as well as it should be because when she goes to hunt for herself he should be taking over nest duties so those ravens came in and uh, while one kept watch the other one ate the egg and then they switched off. The next day, she laid another egg, and now that egg appears to be gone. <laughs> so it's, it's been this, this never-ending kind of a, this soap opera going on. Um, but we're still, uh, you know, guardedly optimistic that uh, she will um, lay another egg because uh, bald eagles typically clutch one to three eggs.
1: You can go to Arizona Game and Fish and stream it. It's got a great picture of the nest, and this is and- one of four game cameras that people have the option to choose from.
0: Correct, the Sandhill Crane Cam, which is in southern Arizona at Whitewater Draw in the southeast corner of the state, south of Wilcox. And they winter in this area by the tens of thousands. So uh, the best time to see them is really in the mid through late afternoon. We also have a bat roost cam. We have an old adobe barn on another Arizona Game of Fish property down at Clough Ranch Wildlife Area just south of Pima, Arizona. And there's nothing happening there right now because uh, the bats have all gone south for the winter. Um, but June through early October, it's uh, hopefully a, a breeding roost colony. So you get to see bats, multiple species of bats that kind of use that as a night roost as well as a breeding ground. And we have our desert pupfish cam, which is a, a Saniga habitat. That one is uh, showing some endangered species of uh, native fish like the pupfish. And during breeding season, they're a brilliant blue. And soon we'll actually have another cam coming online, a great horned owl nest cam, uh, that's also down at Whitewater Draw, the same location as the sandhill Cranes, and that should be online for next breeding season.
1: A, a wonderful service that Arizona Game and Fish provides. You are a government agency, but this isn't public funding.
0: That is correct. Arizona Game of Fish receives no no general tax fund dollars. Uh, so this is funded through the sales of licenses and um, and basically viewer donations. So on any of these cams, which you just follow the wildlife links at the Arizona Game of Fish website, you can click on the donation button and um, and if you like what you're seeing, we encourage people to do that and that contribution goes directly back into the programs and helps provide views like this to the public.
1: Now I got a favor, Mr. Myers, you got to let us know when that Great Horn Owl camera is live and we'll have you back on
0: all right sounds great
1: jeff myers arizona game and fish watchable wildlife program coordinator you know we recorded that earlier this week because he's out in the field today and wasn't available for a live interview and gary i had an idea for them on additional ways to raise funding mm-hmm. on that camera how many they need a laser so that when the raven comes in people that are viewing could like you put in your credit card ahead of time and when it comes you hit activate and whoever pulls the trigger you know you get charged like a shot and keep those ravens away. (laughs) That's not a bad idea. Yeah, I would pay for that. Yeah, that's worth a couple of bucks for me, too. Uh, On the back of the Arizona, Explore Arizona and the Republic, it's all the state symbols. I had no idea we had a state dinosaur.
2: A dinosaur? We have
1: a state dinosaur.
2: T-Rex or something?
1: Uh... Well, I didn't read it. Oh. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. There's only so <laughs> okay. much I can read in the morning. That's what you I do I didn't do know me. we have you a state neckwear. bow tie. bow tie. Uh, bow tie. The Are state fish.
2: I'm sure it's a trout of some kind.
1: Apache trout. Do you know we have a state butterfly?
2: Could it be the monarch? No. What is it?
1: The two-tailed swallow. Okay. Tail. Two-tailed swallow tail. Okay. State mammal. State fossil. I do not know any had a state fossil. The flower's obvious, uh, the bloom on the saguaro. A lot of people get the state bird wrong. So many people say the roadrunner, but it's It's not. the a cactus rind. Yep, Mm -hmm. cactus rind. So it's kind of a fun article back of uh, the Explore Arizona section. If you want to explore Arizona, you can do that by registering for the Arizona staycation at The The, This month's winner, Uh, jay from santan valley is going to tubac
2: tubac and this week if you want to head down to tubac they have their annual festival of the arts from the 6th to the 10th of february 200 artisans all kinds of good food beautiful weather to enjoy they also have fort whipple observatory madera canyon great things to say and do uh titan missile museum
1: we'll have interviews with some of those uh here in the coming weeks the titan missile museum and that uh that fort whipple observatory looks very interesting it's Uh, At 8,500 feet elevation, that's only good enough for the 46th tallest mountain in Arizona.